My name is Leonie Hameson. I'm here with Daniel Alisea, my co-host on Talk Out of School. Hello, mi gente. This is Daniel Alisea, the son of Manny and Alma. Welcome to Talk Out of School. We are on WBAI 99.5 and WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we focus on public schools and public education here locally on a state level and nationally. Our show is also available as a podcast on Apple and Spotify. Our special guest today is Diane Ravitch, famed educational historian, advocate, and president of the Network for Public Education. And we're going to be talking to her about the best and the worst events of 2022 for our schools and what she hopes for 2023 in terms of education here in New York City and across the country. Welcome, Diane. It's great to be with you, uh, Lainey, and very nice to meet Daniel. It's We're very grateful. I'm very grateful that both of you are here to talk with us about this. Um, Diane is just recovering from COVID. And Daniel, you've been recovered for just a few days. Is that right? Yeah, this is uh, my third bout, but um, thankfully feeling better. And and Diane, how are you feeling? Well, I, I've had it now for, I don't know, a little over a week, so I'm hoping to be done with it soon. I feel pretty good, and the only thing I worry about is I don't want to infect anyone else, so I wear a mask wherever I go, and I've been out, uh, out and about the neighborhood walking my dog, and I'm very careful to wear a mask. And and both of you were triply boosted, right? So that really helps, I I think. Yes, it, I think that it's I I give credit to all the shots for having a very mild case. I mean, I'm in a high immunocompromised elderly group, and uh, I'm very lucky that I had all the shots. Yeah, I, I feel like the the vaccines have helped. Uh, I would say the first go around was early 2020, um, before the lockdowns, and so um, I did suffer some some really um, severe uh, symptoms, especially with breathing. But thankfully, these last two bouts, because I'm vaccinated, I, I'm feeling um, that I can handle whatever COVID has, has brought to, to, towards me. However, I'm still concerned about many of the other variants that might be coming about. So we asked some parent leaders, educators, and advocates what some of the best and worst things to happen to our schools in 2022 and what their hopes are for 2023. And we're going to be playing some sound bites from them and also reading out some of the emails they sent us. But let's start with you, Diane. Um, can you tell us what you think some of the worst things that happened over the last year for in terms of our schools? Well, I, I'd say that the worst thing that has happened, and it's been ongoing, it's not just limited to the last 12 months, is the constant attacks on teachers and on public education uh, by people like uh, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, Governor uh, Greg Abbott, and some of the other uh, Republican leadership, where they blame schools for things that have absolutely nothing to do with public education, nothing to do with teachers. And I'm thinking specifically of the, the claim that teachers are somehow grooming students uh, for sec a life of sexual perversion, which is totally ridiculous. Uh, and also the, the laws that have been passed as part of the same uh, made-up culture war attack, uh, the laws that have passed censoring what teachers can teach about racism, what they can teach about history, uh, and forcing them, in effect, to lie. Um, and, and along with this goes the censorship, the book banning, uh, the uh, people showing up at school board meetings who uh, are uh, part of these right-wing extremist groups like uh, Moms for Liberty or Parents Defending Education, even Proud Boys and Oath Keepers showing up at school board meetings to try to intimidate school board members 
to uh, censor teachers and to uh, impose the 1776 curriculum or some other kind of um, foolishness on the schools. I think that um, it's just terrible. We, we've been through periods like this, I think, especially of the uh, 1950s when Joseph McCarthy was uh, had his minions across the country and the schools then became politicized. Uh, it's terrible for kids. It's terrible for teachers. A lot of people are leaving teachings uh, and their reason is not just that the salaries are too low, uh, but that they're not being allowed to teach. Um, and uh, they're under the scrutiny of these uh, uh, extremist watchdogs. So this has been, uh, I think, the, the, the worst thing that's happened in education. It's ongoing. Um, I think there's beginning to be a pushback against it. But uh, these are very intimidating people. And they come to school board meetings and they scream at board members. And uh, the only way to stop them is if the uh, if parents uh, who really have children in the schools and who care about their teachers show up in even greater numbers, and that has happened in a few places, uh, but that's the only way to stop this uh, really vicious attack on schools and on education. It seems vastly yeah. different, Diane, from, I know in the late 90s, the Contract of America did mention uh, parents being more involved in education, but this seems a little bit different, a lot starker. Well, yeah, it, it is. Uh, it is. It's the parents involved in education should mean uh, parents sitting down with the teacher and asking how their child is doing and how they can be helpful, volunteering at school, being more active as, as parents in school. This is really political intimidation, and I don't think that anybody... Uh, openly says, go out and intimidate your school board, but that's in effect what's happening. And it seems so political. I mean, for generations, parents in polls and otherwise have said that they trust their kids' teachers almost more than anybody else. And there's been, you know, a, a unanimity among parents and teachers that they want the best for their students. And yet now this seems to be motivated by this, you know, right-wing push to undermine confidence in the public schools and to um, aid to their agenda of privatization. So well, the more the more yeah. you can sort of wreck the public schools and undermine confidence in the public schools, the more you can add to their political goal, which is basically to destroy public schools. Well, this is absolutely correct. And um, the the one of the people who's most responsible for this politicization is a right-wing activist named Chris Rufo. And uh, I listened to a speech that he gave at Hillsdale College, which is a very uh, right-wing evangelical college in Michigan. And he said to his audience uh, that, uh, you know, all these terrible things are happening in America in terms of liberals winning elections and, and imposing ideas that he disagrees with. And the only way to stop it is school choice. Uh, and then he made it very clear that people should uh, become actively involved in promoting alternatives to public schools. And uh, he he's the guy who's behind the critical race theory uh, hysteria of a, it seems like it was just the other day, but in fact, it was over the last couple of years. We now have about, I think, 25 states that have passed laws banning critical race theory in the schools. And I don't think there's a school in America that actually teaches critical race theory. Uh, when they talk about critical race theory, what they really mean, and I'm speaking of people like Chris Rufo and also these extremist groups, is any honest teaching about racism. If you teach about slavery, if you teach about um, the massacres of black people, if you teach about the Ku Klux Klan, uh, honest history, uh, that somehow is critical race theory because it's saying that racism uh, existed in the past and even more offensive to these critics is the notion that racism exists in the present. They deny that it exists. Well, they deny that they'll say, well, that was long ago. You're sure there was slavery, but that was long, long, long ago. We don't have racism anymore. I think you have to be willfully ignorant to claim that there is no racism today when you look at the, uh, the killings of, of especially black men and black women uh, who were killed in their home uh, by police who were much too fast to uh, shoot their guns off because the uh, person on the other side was a person of color. 
but they deny racism and any teaching about racism today is considered to be critical race theory. So uh, teachers don't really know anymore what is and what is not critical race theory and the best way to avoid violating those laws is to simply censor yourself and that should be totally uh, objectionable and unacceptable in our schools. Well, there's a lot more to say, especially about the weaponization and mobilization by the right to to really intimidate um, parents and educators and and students in public education. I think about Charlie Kirk and Turning Point and some of the dark money. But let's move forward. Diane, what would you think uh, are some of the best moments for public schools and public education in 2022? Well, it was a grim year, so that's the backdrop. And so one looks for light where, where you can find it. I was thrilled recently to see that the Kentucky Supreme Court unanimously uh, said that the state's voucher law uh, violated the state constitution. I thought that was particularly exciting because every state has a state constitution saying that public money should not be used to fund relig- religious schools. And yet we seem to be hurtling in that direction, uh, particularly because of the composition of the Supreme Court. Uh, which is made up uh, at least five to three and maybe six to three of religious zealots. I think that uh, um, the Chief Justice would be inclined to be part of the the liberal minority occasionally, but being that the majority is already led by uh, Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, um, we're going to see more decisions that are that please people who say that their freedom of religion allows them to get public funding uh, or allows them to discriminate. Uh, so I think that when when a state court like the Kentucky Supreme Court, which is the highest court, says that the state constitution bans funding of religious schools, uh, that uh, sends a message. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of states are not hearing that. For example, Indiana has uh, many, many vouchers. Uh, Ohio has lots of vouchers. And both states have state constitutions that say no funding for religious schools, none whatsoever. And their state courts have uh, interpreted the Constitution in a way to say that the money doesn't go to religious schools, it goes to the parents. Same thing in the state of Florida, where there's a huge voucher program, and the state courts have said that the money goes to uh, uh, somehow is rerouted, and it doesn't matter that it ends up uh, sending over a billion dollars a year to mostly to religious schools. So when there's a bright light like Kentucky, uh, I celebrate it. The other thing I celebrate is Texas, uh, because while there's very little good that's happening in Texas these days, uh, the legislature has consistently, again and again, refused to uh, pass the law for vouchers. And I attribute that to the very dedicated work of uh, pastors for Texas children. And uh, their leadership, uh, they're led by Charlie Johnson, who's just a fantastic Baptist pastor. And uh, he has helped to set up similar organizations in other states uh, to to fight the voucher movement. But he's been particularly effective in Texas uh, by creating an alliance of urban uh, legislators and rural uh, Republicans. So it's urban Democrats and rural Republicans. Uh, rural districts really don't want vouchers because they only have one school and they don't see the value of, of undermining their public school, which is where uh, everybody went to school. The parents went there, the grandparents went there, and it's been there for generations. And they don't see why they should now start supporting schools to compete with their one rural school. So that has been the resistance. It's been the resistance in Texas uh, and in other states as well. Uh, The other thing that I'm particularly pleased about, well, I'd say there were two things. One is that there is growing public understanding that there is, in fact, a well-funded movement to destroy public education. And I've been uh, on this this issue now since, well, I guess 2009 or, or earlier. And at the time uh, when I started writing about the effort to promote privatization of public schools, I couldn't gain any traction. People just didn't see it. I think now uh, as I scroll through Twitter and, and scroll through different newspapers, uh, I see letters from the public uh, echoing things that I've been saying for years 
uh, where there was no understanding uh, that this is not just uh, parents who are saying, oh, please let me have a charter school. Oh, please uh, let me send my child to a religious school with public money. This is a billionaire funded movement uh, and it's a combination of billionaires and evangelicals uh, who want, and Catholics uh, who want public money uh, for their schools and specifically want to destroy the public schools. They don't want to just be in competition. They want to destroy public education. And as they uh, create more charter schools, as they create, uh, create more voucher programs, the money is uh, taken away from public schools and leaves them underfunded and incapable of providing the services that they should provide. That's the second reason I find to be optimistic is this growing public awareness. And the third thing that made me very happy this year was that um, the Network for Public Education, which I helped to found with Anthony Cody uh, in about 2012, and of which Laney is a board member and has been since the beginning, uh, that we saw a, a great victory in, in, first of all, with the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, which actually created regulations for the federal charter school program. Now, most people have never heard of the federal charter school program. The federal government is the biggest single funder of charter schools. The second biggest funder is the Walton Family Foundation in Arkansas, the Walmart family. But the federal government has been giving almost a half billion dollars year after year uh, for new charter schools and for the expansion of charter schools. And that makes a huge difference to have that steady stream of its 440 million a year. And there are Democrats in Congress who support uh, charters because uh, they get a lot of money from the hedge fund managers in Wall Street uh, and people who are uh, these billionaires who uh, give campaign funding. Uh, the Wall Street group is called Democrats for Education Reform, and I doubt seriously that many of them are actually Democrats, but they have been very politically powerful in terms of getting them money flowing, the federal funds flowing. And the Network for Public Education produced two reports showing that the federal funds were very poorly spent, uh, that a large percentage of those federally funded schools closed uh, within three years. Uh, a large percentage of them got the money and never opened, uh, and that it was a very bad investment because there's no accountability, there's no transparency. And so as a result of those two reports, uh, we were actually able to get the support, particularly of the Appropriations Committee, uh, while the Democrats still held control of Congress. And I'm speaking specifically of Ro Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut. She's the chair of the Appropriations Committee and uh, a great supporter of public schools and of labor unions and a wonderful person all around. And um, she tried to cut the charter school's budget and the Senate restored it. Uh, but then there, she also was very supportive, as were other Democrats, of the Department of Education's proposed regulations to require that any charter school funded by federal funds uh, would be subject to uh, accountability, transparency. Uh, they would have to show uh, a needs analysis. They would have to show that they were not going to segregate the district. And this is because the Network for Public Education uh, showed that a number of, of charter school, federal charter school grants were actually being used to create segregation academies that were all white or all black. Uh, and so these regulations became very controversial. The, the charter lobby fought very hard to prevent them from being adopted and they lost. Uh, they were adopted and there was a, uh, one last stand just a few weeks ago in the Senate to, uh, cancel the regulations. And we were very concerned that because the, there are a few Democratic senators who support charters, and I'm speaking specifically of Senator Cory Booker and Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, and there may be one or two others, but much to our uh, delight, there was a straight party line vote and the entire Democratic uh, Senate uh, slate or all the Democratic senators voted to sustain the regulations. So they will go into effect, there will be accountability in the future, and most important, there will be no federal funding of for-profit charters as a result of these uh, new regulations. So I consider that to be 
a big victory uh, for our side. Uh, the accountability, the transparency, and the uh, ban on for-profit charters uh, dipping into federal funding. I just wanted to add that in terms of the charter lobby and the big uh, donations that they give to politicians that Diane mentioned, uh, one of the greatest sources of donations to our new mayor, uh, Mayor Adams, was from many of these same billionaire pro-charter Wall Street hedge funders. And so um, he has been pretty much on the charter school bandwagon for quite some time. And we're seeing the results of this now with a whole new round of charter co-location proposals. But Diane, what are your hopes for 2023? Uh, we just went through a lot of Sturm and Drang in 2022. What do you hope to see in the future? Well, my hope is that what I call the growing public awareness of the nature of this attack, that it's not grassroots, that it is billionaire funded, and that most of the, if not all of these uh, anti-public school organizations are phony organizations. They they have no grassroots. They have no real, uh, there may be parents involved, but usually they're parents who've been paid millions of dollars by the Walton Foundation or, or one of the Koch groups, uh, you know, Charles Koch. Uh, so I hope that this growing public awareness causes parents who love their public schools, and there are many, many, many of them, uh, to come to school board meetings, to run for school board, uh, and to stand up to these bullies and say, leave our teachers alone. Uh, so I, I hope if, if we don't have an active public supporting public education, then we're going to lose public education. And I think that to the extent that awareness grows and people are willing to stand up. Of course, it requires a lot of courage to go to a school board meeting. You, you shouldn't go alone. You should call your neighbors and, and the PTA and get the PTA really to rally and say uh, enough of this. I mean, I, I guess another nice thing that happened in the elections was in a state like New Hampshire, uh, the parent uh, groups that authentically love their public schools turned out en masse and defeated uh, the uh, right-wing uh, extremist groups trying to take over the school boards. Uh, the the uh, extremist groups did win some school boards. They uh, since this since uh, Florida in particular has a governor who's determined to stamp out public schools. Uh, there were a lot of the extremists. Uh, if if they weren't elected to school boards, he appointed them to school boards. So uh, I, I think that as as parents who or genuinely interested in their children's education become alarmed by the actions of these school boards and their efforts to uh, impose their point of view. Uh, I am hoping that they too will, will uh, get organized without the public getting outraged and organized and standing up against these extremist groups, uh, they will win. And I certainly hope that doesn't happen because uh, we would be sacrificing a generation of children and hurt, hurting our country if we allow these uh, crazies to uh, to take over. Thank you so much for being with us today, Diane. I really appreciate it and um, hopes for a great 2023 for you and for the Network for Public Education and, and a happy, healthy new year. Thank well, you, thank Diane. You and happy new year to you both and to all of your listeners. Thank you so much. So, Lainey, it'd be interesting to hear some of your reflections and thoughts about 2022 and uh, moving forward for 2023. Right. So one of the worst things that happened last year with the really extreme and, and savage budget cuts to schools, um, they were totally unnecessary because the city had still more than $4 billion in federal COVID funds meant to help our schools recover from all the disruptions due to the COVID pandemic. And we were also getting an additional uh, $355 million in state foundation funding. And yet our school budgets were cut by about a billion dollars. Class sizes went up. Many schools lost art, music teachers and counselors. These cuts affected nearly every school. And um, parents were rightly angry about this. Um, and their anger was only further amplified by the fact that 
Mayor Adams went around saying that there were no budget cuts to schools, which was ridiculous, and the parents could see the changes in their schools because of these cuts. So I think that that was one of the worst things that happened in 2022, and I hope it doesn't happen again in 2023. You're listening to WBAI Talk Out of School on 99.5 FM. And so for this next segment, Lainey, we're going to share some written comments and audio voice messages sent to us by parents, leaders, and advocates uh, sharing their own reflections about the 2022 school year um, and how um, public schools and public education endured some of uh, some struggles, but also what they want to celebrate as the best moments and also some of their hopes and wishes for 2023. I'm going to start off with Susan Edelman, who wrote us. Um, Susan is a veteran investigator, investigative reporter who I recently interviewed, and she sent this message. City schools in 2022 started with great excitement and hope when new Chancellor David Banks took office. I'm committed to drastic change, Banks told me, saying he planned to trim and streamline the massive DOE bureaucracy to save millions of dollars for the system that gets pushed closer to schools. But the opposite happened. In the first six months, Banks hired and promoted many educrats, each making up to $269,000 a year. This included Mayor Adams' longtime girlfriend, a DOE administrator who uh, was quietly promoted to senior advisor to the deputy chancellor for leadership with a huge raise. And so instead of the bureaucracy shrinking, it grew. DOE central and district offices exceeded the um, 2022 budgets by 107.9 million. Also, the DOE continued to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on contracts uh, in, in a blink of an eye. It's a tremendous challenge for the panel of educational policy, a board of laypersons to keep track of it all. The podcast, Lainey Hameson happened uh, to, in, in this podcast, Lainey Hameson happened to spot a seven-year, $3.17 million no-bid textbook contract to McGraw-Hill that gave a zero discount off list price and charged 7% of for shipping. Laney also raised awareness on Twitter and sparked press, conf, uh, press coverage that led the DOE to withdraw the embarrassing deal. We can rely on banks and his bureaucracy to make the best use of taxpayer dollars um, to serve students and we need an army of people like Laney to act as watchdogs and be more aggressive with news coverage. Yeah, I hope that that more people pay attention to these contracts going forward because um, we need every penny that's spent by DOE to directly benefit students and schools and all these ridiculous contracts month after month are, you know, many of them um, are excessive, wasted money. Um, Shirley Aubin is the co-chair of the Chancellor's Parent Advisory Council, which is a body which represents all the PTAs in the city. And she wrote in the following, the worst thing is ending 2022 with all these collocation proposals. These are charter collocation proposals, despite the small class size mandate. All of New York City traditional public school students should be our priority in ensuring they're provided with all the opportunities, resources, and services they need for a quality education and that they are entitled to. Um, she hopes that there's a plan in place so that all schools are adequately funded with the resources and enrichment programs required for quality education to be able to comply with the small class size law. Um, that's one of my hopes as well. So far, we've seen very little evidence from this administration that they are actually planning to reduce class size as the new state law requires. And instead, they're doing things like putting more charter schools into public school buildings where that will prevent them from having the space to lower class size. So not only do we not see the evidence that this administration is focused on on complying with the law, we have evidence that they're making it more difficult. Shirley added this, which I think is really interesting. She 
hopes that all schools and DOE buildings, including Tweed, have the equipment necessary to have an effective and productive hybrid public meetings and that the open meetings law is amended so that school leadership teams can have the choice of in-person, hybrid, or virtual meetings. I would add the following. And one of the very few good things that happened as a result of the pandemic was to open up the school leadership team meetings, also the panel for educational policy meetings, also community education council meetings to, um, to remote um, participation um, through Zoom. And what that's mean, meant is a really um, growth in parent participation in these meetings. It's very difficult for parents to get around the city to attend these meetings in person. Often, you know, they will have to travel far, especially if these are middle schools or high school meetings. They don't live close by. They have all sorts of family responsibilities and sometimes even job responsibilities. And to be able to log on remotely and participate has been a great boon to par uh, public participation. Um, and in general, not just parents, but advocates like me, I could sometimes now um, share and do a briefing for CECs like two or three in the same evening. And it's been incredibly convenient, a time saver. And I think it's really added to um, the awareness and the and the input of parents into all these important um, bodies. I agree that the virtual technology is helping to dem democratize our schools. Uh, Tara Foster, an education rights attorney with Legal Aid, wrote to us saying some positive developments that came out of 2022 were that New York City public school system um, systems lessened reliance on flawed New York State standardized testing to measure student achievement and the apparent recognition that the pandemic impacted the mental health of New York City public school students and staff. Sadly, despite the purported influx of federal and other dollars, the city and state did not adequately address learning loss through academic intervention services for students and their families. Furthermore, so-called recovery services for students with disabilities were inadequate, poorly publicized, and ultimately cut back. Um, kudos to Tara. Right. And Sarah Catalan Catalinato of PIST, or Parents to Improve School Transportation, had some of the same observations. Um, they work for better busing, which is especially important for kids with disabilities. And she wrote in, in terms of the fight for reliable school bus routes, the best thing in 2022 was a new level of collaboration among parents of students with disabilities and allies, such as the school bus unionists, disability right activists, national adv advocates for transit equity, and local advocates. We were able to keep the momentum going with several outdoor rallies um, and presence at resources, fairs, legislative hearings, and pep meetings. The worst thing is that the reason everyone's more aware and activated is the accumulated neglect of school busing has been so extreme, leaving hundreds of kids without an assigned route or driver or bus pair to this day. And she hopes for in 2023, more realistic preventive approaches to viral spread because health and safety should come first to gather enough petitions for a ballot initiative to approve school bus bill of rights in New York City and generous new label labor contracts, which will attract and retain more school bus workers. And then there's Michael Mulgrew, the president of the United Federation of Teachers, who wrote in that 2023 is the potential to bring lasting change for our students and educators with the implementation of the state law to lower class sizes. If educators, parents, and activists keep the pressure on the DOE to do its job and fulfill these responsibilities, we have our work cut out for us. And again, I agree with Michael Mulgrew completely that we need to keep the pressure on this administration because we really have no um, evidence that they are planning on complying with the law. And to cap off the written comments, um, we have Sarah Allen, and I, I suggest you follow her on Twitter. Um, she is a New York City teacher who wrote in her wishes for 2022. She wishes for New York City public schools to get the funding they need and deserve, for the work to begin on smaller class size, the city to join that work specifically for more mental health support for our students who desperately need it 
and for New York City public schools to see that there's value in protecting our students from missing out so much school due to being sick, actually monitoring and improving ventilation with the millions of dollars in tools that the de Blasio administration purchased, making sure eating spaces have fresh air, etc. I want my class to be in school instead of being sick so much. It's a long shot. Um, a mayor who um, who cares about public schools is her final wish. Here is Tom Shepard. He is the CEC president's appointee to the panel of educational policy. He is also the vice chairperson for the PEP. Tom is a proud dad of six children, three of whom attend New York City public schools in the Bronx. He is also a product of New York City public schools. As I reflect on 2022, and with all the issues that our students and families face in New York City public schools, I would say the worst and the best for me this year was really the fight over funding for New York City public schools. The worst part was a mayor and a city council that signed off on a budget that shortchanged our students and our schools by hundreds of millions of dollars. And then the best part is families, especially our students and our parents and educators, stepping in and saying that this is completely unacceptable and taking it to the streets and taking it to the courts to get a different outcome. And while we didn't get the results that we had hoped for, what it did was it put our city council members on notice that circumventing the will and the expressed desire of our students and our families in school communities does in fact have consequences. And it's my hope that 2023 will bring a year of accountability for elected officials so that they will serve the best interests of the communities in which they were elected to serve. So with that, I want to wish everyone a happy holiday and a prosperous new year. My name is Galiri Salas. I am faculty at CUNY, and I am also the Manhattan Borough President appointee to the PEP, parent of two children in our New York City public schools. What was exciting for me this year was definitely joining the panel for educational policy and understanding the dynamics that occur within that space and how to use that platform to help support schools and school communities. I have seen some amazing work in our schools, particularly in Manhattan, and feel like I trust our district leadership in the borough to do the work in each individual district in Manhattan. I think the hardest was to see how Mayor Adams cut the budgets for our schools and trying to figure out how to best support them when they are already trying to meet the needs of so many marginalized students and kids that really, really need the support. And the only way that they can get it is if the school has resources. And so seeing the differences between services provided in our more affluent districts compared to our under-resourced districts is really difficult for me to observe in this platform. My hope is that because of the lawsuit and because we have very knowledgeable people on the panel and on CECs, we have the opportunity to move the work forward and hold the mayor accountable so that finally 
we can end mayoral control in 2024. That is my hope, that is my wish, and I wish everybody a happy new year. Hello, my name is Tanisha Grant, and I am the proud mother of three amazing kids and four amazing grandchildren. Um, I am a community organizer and a community leader. Um, I am also the executive director and founder of community-based organizations, Parents Supporting Parents New York, and Moms United for Black Lives, New York City. Um, the worst things that happened this year for me in 2022 uh, was that our mayor defunded our public school system um, by millions, maybe a billion dollars. Um, the wasteful spending by the Department of Education and the mayor when it comes to schools, um, putting pressure on parents and students and teachers to come to school regardless of coronavirus infection. Um, and what's really bad was the threatening of children um, over their attendance. Using our children to boost up their numbers by attendance was really awful. Um, the best thing about 2022 for me was the community work uh, that my organization did on the ground, um, fighting for digital equity by giving out computers and printers, high quality computers and printers. Um, the solidarity of the education community, I'm talking about parents, um, students and teachers, we really stood together this year um, and looking forward to us continuing to stand together. Um, the smaller class size bill was signed uh, by uh, Governor Kathy Hogel, and we're looking forward to that being implemented. Uh, the six council members who stood up and voted no to the budget was really amazing, how they really stood behind the community and fought for the community, understanding that this budget would really hurt um, our community. Um, my hopes for 2023 is that we continue to work on ending mayor control um, over our public school system. We really need to have community involved. We really need a community board. Um, um, implementation of smaller class sizes, which will also mean building new schools um, and the continued work between the education community um, to ensure that all of our children have a high quality, um, culturally responsive education, our children who learn differently, um, all of our children um, deserve the best and we're looking forward to pushing forward in 2023 that they get the best. Hello, Talk Out of School. This is Shino. I'm a longtime parent advocate for public education. I've been fighting for small class size, better school funding, and equitable school system for quite some time. So what I'm hoping for in 2023 is that those of us who are fighting for equity in the New York City public school system can actually make some real progress. I feel like we were so distracted by this false narrative around CRT, which is not even taught in our public school system, and attacks against trans students, queer students, and students with disabilities, students who are housing insecure, all these students that we have been fighting for, there has been a lot of pushback in 2022. So I'm hoping that we can actually make progress elevating the needs of the most historically marginalized students in our system and really try to turn our public school system into something more equitable that really recognize the humanity of every student. So that's what I'm hoping for. And Happy New Year. Hey, Lainey and Daniel, this is Jennifer Chan, special education advocate from Queens. I wanted to say that the best part of 2022 was when the panel for educational policy refused to approve the fair student funding formula back in April. And this is a formula that continuously subjects schools to make poor decisions when it comes to supporting students with disability because it 
because the way the formula is created, it makes it very difficult sometimes for students, for schools to provide these students with what they need because it can become very expensive. Um, so if one student needs integrated co-teaching and the rest of the class doesn't, that one student's funding formula is not going to cover the needs for a whole teacher, something like that. It just, it's just really bad. Um, so what's the worst part of 2022? For me, it is the fact that, um, even though things, you know, we've talked about fair student funding formula, it's still not something that we're seeing in terms of a change for students with disabilities um, that's on the horizon. So because of that, um, I'm still so worried about these students. I'm so I'm worried that schools will continue to not provide like a 12 to one self-contained class for those who need that kind of support. We're still going to have schools that are like gifted and talented programs in elementary schools um, that are going to shy away from providing integrated co-teaching services for students who need it. And the same thing goes for specialized high schools also refraining from providing these services when they need it. I'm not talking about kids who walk in with those on their IEP. I'm, so, I'm talking about kids who need it while they're there and discovering those needs. Those students are at great risk for not getting what they need based on the formula. Thanks. Happy holidays. My name is Lupe Hernandez, and I'm one of the borough president appointees on Community Education Council for District 2, an active PIS NYC member that's Parents to Improve School Transportation, part of the working group for healing-centered schools, and recently appointed on the task force to address transportation for our students in temporary housing. Thank you for having me as a guest this past year on WBAI's Talk Out of School. And thank you for all your coverage and reporting on public schools. I would say that the worst thing to happen this year was the egregious budget cuts that impacted a majority of all of our public schools, especially our most vulnerable students, such as students in temporary housing, our multilingual learners, and our students with disabilities. These cuts were unnecessary and caused havoc on many schools, especially after principals spent a year with funding that actually allowed them to provide these programs that were not available without the COVID relief funds, which we still have over $4 billion left over that have to be used by 2024. I am also very disappointed in the break in the promise of having a 3K seat for every three-year-old starting in fall of 2023, and I hope that this may be reversed by next fall. The best thing to happen this year was having Governor Kathy Hochul sign the class size bill that will mandate to reduce class sizes in the next five years. All the letters I wrote, the many rallies I attended, standing side by side by class size matters over the years have really come to fruition. And my hope for the upcoming year is that we can really take a stark look at how the blue book is not accurate when looking at the utilization of space in our public schools so that we can build where needed and use any unquote unquote unused space in a meaningful way to reduce class sizes and have proper space for related services and therapy. Our kids deserve dignity and respect while receiving the free appropriate public education and reducing the class sizes will help teachers to really be able to implement social emotional learning and build a more cultural, responsive, sustaining education that will lead to all student success. I thank you again. I appreciate all that you've done. And um, thank you. My name is Allison Demas. I'm an instructional coordinator with the Division of Early Childhood Education, working with 3K and Pre-K. My wish for city schools for 2023 is for private individuals Politicians, hedge fund managers, real estate developers, charter school owners, their friends and families, etc., to stop using publicly funded facilities and programs designed to support public school children and their families and improve the public good for everyone as a means to increase their own private wealth. My name is Aixa Rodriguez. I'm an ENL teacher at the high school level. This year's top three uh, memories of education 
uh, neglect and direct harm to public education under Mayor Adams, definitely fighting for the funding that is owed to our schools, um, having to go to court repeatedly, marching in the street for that, only to come to find out that we're going to have to really look at everything. Everything needs to be audited. We have corrupt principals doing what can only be called human trafficking and controlling uh, new new teachers from the Dominican Republic. Um, alarm bells rang when that happens. We are not serving our English language learners properly. Um, slow, slow movement in the panel for education po- policy to recognize the harm that is happening through the parasites of charter schools who are invading and taking up space and literally preventing the schools from having their own space for their own needs. Um, and uh, the blue book and the space utilization not being looked at realistically and uh, people having to go in in person to see what the truth is. Lack of librarians, um, all kinds of things happening. And it just seems that there's a lot more corruption coming out, money being diverted instead of for the children to other places. And it seems like the fight in Bloomberg years has come back. So it, in my head, I feel like we're, we're, it's, it's deja vu all over again. <laughs> to take Yogi's statement, it's definitely deja vu all over again. The fight is on for class sizes, for space for our children, and um, for people to recognize that we need librarians, that we need ESL classes for children, and we need to have trained teachers, and we need to be freed from all of the corruption, and we need funding. All of it in a nutshell. My name is Martina Meyer, and I am a teacher in District 22 in Brooklyn, as well as a member of MORE UFT, the Social Justice Caucus of the UFT. For me this year, the challenges affecting New York City schools and public education have been related to the defunding of public education and the push to privatize. Mayor Eric Adams cut $469 million from school budgets at a time when he had billions in unspent federal stimulus funds. The subsequent gaslighting and disingenuous claims to care about what parents and families and education advocates had to say made the cuts even worse. He didn't acknowledge what he was doing. To this day, he insists that he didn't make any cuts to education. The bright side of that was seeing the commitment, dedication, and collaboration between various education advocacy groups and parent activists coming together to fight for our schools. My wishes for city schools for 2023 are to be fully funded and fully valued. I want the Bloomberg era folks who pushed for privatization and charters almost two decades ago and who are now back in the Adams administration to be replaced by employees who are committed to the investment in and flourishing of public education in our city. I want to see legislation that compels those who work in the public sector to operate in the interests of the public good rather than supporting efforts to privatize. I want to see the permanent reinstatement of the early childhood instructional coordinators and social workers. I want early childhood to remain in the public realm and to stop the privatization of the Department of Early Childhood Education. As a classroom teacher, the 2021-2020 school year was the first and only time in 15 years of teaching that I had everything I needed to teach and my students had everything that they needed as well. Students and teachers should have what they need every year, supply-wise and otherwise. Before we fund the central bureaucracy of the Department of Education, we need to fully fund our schools and classrooms. We need decentralized control of schools, and we need to use the next year to reimagine what school governance can look like, because mayoral control is a remnant of the Bloomberg administration, and it allows for the PEP to be used as a rubber stamp rather than a forum for discussion, debate, and decision-making with meaningful input from the public. This is Lydia Halrika. She had taught in New York City schools for over a decade. She also has led a UFT caucus called UFT Solidarity. Hey, y'all. So I feel like the biggest hope that I have for education in 2023 is the fact that we will always continue to remember that despite our very small differences, at our core, most people really care about public schools and public educators, and they truly want what's best for children. Um, and I can, at least in New York City, I continue to hope and pray that educators, different union groups, different activists and advocates will continue to work together 
to find what is what we have in common and then be able to use it to fight for the schools that our kids and our educators deserve. In terms of the best things that happened in public ed in 2022, I mean, I would have to say it was getting Kathy Hochul in New York State to sign the class size bill. I'm hopeful that we can have lower class sizes, at least over the next 10 years. Um, even though I know that there are a lot of things stacked against this actually becoming a reality, at least in New York City schools. Um, another thing that I really love that happened in 2022 is the fact that United for Change ran in the U of T elections and we won high school executive board seats. And our executive board members at the high school level are bravely pushing back and they're fighting for more equitable schools. And this just makes me feel happy that we actually have a voice in our U of T leadership. Daniel, happy New Year's. This is Jonathan Holliday. Uh, for 25 years, I was a teacher. For 20 years, a chapter leader. Uh, for most of those 20 years, like 17 of them, I was the programmer. And this term, I've been on terminal leave. I am not in school. And my realization, my awareness, my comment is I had no idea how stressful my job had become until this fall when I've been experiencing a season without that kind of stress, that level of stress. Um, happy New Year's. Best to all of your listeners. That's all we have time for today. We want to thank our listeners, the Tribe of Love, for joining us today here on Talk Out of School. A very special thank you to Diane Ravitch and all those who sent in their reflections for the 2022 school year and also um, those that shared their wishes for 2023. Lainey, we have an important announcement about our show. Can you please share that with our listeners? Yes, Daniel. In, in 2023, we're moving this show, Talk Out of School, to Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on WBAI, and we hope to have many of you listening and calling in. So please consider becoming a member of WBAI as a special supporter of Talk Out of School. You can do so by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. WBAI is a city on the hill. It is the source for free speech radio and where you can hear substantive talk about the issues that matter. We need support of people like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations here in New York City that doesn't run ads. Yes, and this is the last day of 2022. It's a tax-deductible donation. Uh, WBAI is a nonprofit and really needs your support. There's no other show on the air that really delves into the issues and controversies affecting our public schools here in New York City, like Talk Out of School. So if you appreciate what we're doing, please donate to WBAI, again, by calling 212-209-2950. You can also easily donate online at WBAI.org. And so we'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Please be careful. Please be safe. And remember, Tribe of Love. That love always wins. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Holidays bring us all together. So let's stay up to date with COVID-19 vaccines and boosters. And mask up if it's crowded indoors. Happy, healthy holidays. 33 cents a day. Not much, is it? Boost change. 
a third of a cup of coffee. It's nothing. But did you know that 33 cents a day can help WBAI stay on the air? That's all it takes. As little as 33 cents a day, $10 a month, you can be a BAI buddy. A BAI buddy is someone who signs up to make a recurring monthly donation to WBAI using either a credit card, debit card, or by electronic fund transfer from your bank account. It's safe, secure, and easy, and it helps keep our unique, alternative, and diverse programming on the air. You'll get a WBAI membership card and other goodies. Sign up online. Go to WBAI.org and click on Donate. All the details are right there. The WBAI buddy. Be one today. Any reason is a good reason to give a vehicle to WBAI. Some do it to avoid the hassles of selling. Some like to skip the costs of repairing, while others just enjoy the good feelings of giving back to their community. But no matter your reason, donating a vehicle to WBAI is a great idea. And it's easy. Here's how it works. Simply call 